Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We are back in this great book of Romans. We've been in it for six or seven months, I think, already. And so we'll refresh your recollection a little bit uh, in just a minute. But before we uh, jump in. Happy New Year. We do have a new reading guide up on our website, so you can hop uh, onto churchinthesquare.com and click on our discipleship page under daily, and you can get updates. Uh, the reading guide will be going through Philippians this year. would love for you to join us uh, in that. And just as an encouragement, I know in the middle of this, especially turning the page into a new year, uh, in the middle of what continues to be a really tragic and uh, difficult season, Let's continue to pray for one another. Pray for uh, teachers as many uh, are potentially going back to school in the next couple of weeks and families as they decide in the CPS system and, and all over the city and particularly particularly the city, but all, also all over the country. Continue to pray for frontline workers, healthcare uh, workers. Continue to pray for the sick. Um, I'm reminded by a couple of folks in our group who are just really diligent about each time that they pray, they remember to pray for the sick. And so we certainly want to take time to do that as we prepare our hearts uh, for receiving from the Lord as he has already spoken to us as we've gathered together, but we trust that he will continue to be faithful to that um, in Romans chapter 3. So let's pray, ask for God's help, uh, and then we will go from there. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would continue to sustain us, continue to help us. Uh, I pray for uh, the various groups that are, are gathered in this moment, or perhaps a family or an individual simply listening, participating in the liturgy. Uh, that way, we pray you continue to bind us together as your people, not just for our good, but certainly, Father, for our good, that we'd be encouraged that, that you would draw near to us, even as we draw near to, to one another as a community. We also continue to pray for the sick. We continue to pray for those who are in incredible need in this season, not just with COVID-19, but, but any kind of sickness and ailment is really complex right now in getting care. And so we do ask that you'd sustain healthcare providers, the healthcare workers. We pray uh, all of the frontline workers, Father, would you sustain them? Would you help them? We pray for teachers and families as uh, many potentially will be going back to school in, in uh, the coming weeks. We ask for your protection and wisdom. Father, and ultimately we look to you as the one who takes care of us. You are the one who protects us. You are the one who numbers our days. You are the one who safeguards and uh, guides us. And so we submit to you, particularly as we come to this word, Father, we ask for your help today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, it's been a minute since we've been in Romans. We uh, took some time, obviously, uh, to experience Advent together through uh, Luke's gospel, the first couple of chapters, and now we're landing back in Romans. And so it's helpful to sort of refresh our recollection, if you will, about where, where we have been. And, and if you remember, we can summarize essentially the entire uh, book of Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. And Paul said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what we have been studying based in that particular text and then woven throughout all of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and on into chapter 3 is that salvation is not a concept. Salvation is a person. 
Salvation is not an idea. It, it's not an, an agenda. It's not something that we do or even that has been done for us first and foremost. But salvation is a person, Jesus Christ, God himself. Similarly, righteousness is, is not something that we garner. It's not something that we possess. It's not something first and foremost that we um, can even perform and do. That righteousness ultimately, first, foremost, and forever, is Jesus Christ himself. This is what Paul says about the gospel, that Jesus himself is the gospel. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our righteousness. And the, the good news of that is that to be saved, you need to be righteous. And so in Jesus, we find our salvation because in him we find our righteousness. And, and through the first couple of chapters, really two and a half chapters, Paul has been over and over again making sure that we understand the problem of sin, understand the problem of sin as it relates to righteousness, that we are all unrighteous, that we ultimately, uh, sin is the centering of self. So we've all put ourselves the center. And any sin, and certainly the, the mar of sin, the, the stain of sin that's on each of our lives, is not just detrimental or harmful to us, but it's also spiritual treason. And therefore, through the first couple of chapters in, in Romans, we've not only learned that, that sin then leads to death, but, but also it leads to the wrath of God be, because that is his righteous response to our treasonous act of sin. That's what our sin has brought forth. And, and, and ultimately, what's revealed that is the law of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. This is where we landed before our break in uh, uh, Romans. Uh, in Romans 3, verse 20, Paul sort of summarizes this idea of the function of the law the Old Testament rules, regulations, and will uh, of God. It says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law was never intended to be your pathway to salvation or my pathway to salvation. In other words, if you just do all of these things, then you'll be fine. You'll be good. Ultimately, what, what the law does is reveal that we need salvation. So the law is not your salvation. The law reveals that you need salvation. The law reveals our sin. And, and this is really bad news, as it were, right? And, and Paul delivers this, and then and he moves into chapter 3, verse 21, in one of the great shifts, right? Great gospel shifts, moving from the bad news into the good that we find anywhere in the New Testament. And here's what it says, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and this will be our focus for today. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So a few things that we want to cover today. Ultimately, in that word manifested, we realize that righteousness is not something that we go out and discover on our own. Jesus himself is not somebody that we go and figure out by even reading the word or that we do some sort of acts of righteousness to get his attention. That ultimately, then what Paul is teaching us here uh, is that righteousness is revealed. And so we need to ask, what is revealed righteousness? What does that mean? What are the implications of that? And I want to suggest to you that we don't trust revealed righteousness, that something about it smacks as impossible in, in our concept, in our, in our you know, sort of mind's eye. And so we don't trust revealed righteousness. So then we'll, we'll consider that. And then thirdly, lastly, we'll just ask, how can trust be restored? So what is revealed righteousness? Why don't we trust it? And how is trust restored? So that's kind of how we'll, we'll move through this particular text as we consider um, this righteousness of God today. 
And, and ultimately, I think <laughs> I want to pastor us a little bit on something that I think can happen through Romans and really anywhere in Scripture, is that Paul repeats himself a lot. And whenever Scripture is repeated, we, we can start to feel a little bit bored, right? That, that ultimately we can feel like, oh, this is repetitive. I've heard this before. But, and we can get sort of tired of the same old themes. But much of our weariness when themes are repeated in the Bible are, are because we are so fascinated with being entertained. We, we want to be entertained. And I confess to you that when I'm writing sermons, I, I often think, how can I make this exciting? How can I get people's attention? How can I entertain them with this? And so I, I realize that tension even uh, as a preacher, not just as a listener of uh, God's word or, or hearing God's word proclaimed, but even proclaiming it myself. The allure of entertainment is so strong that when a theme is repeated, we, we believe, well, it better be in a fresh way or in a new way. We probably felt this around Advent. Like I, I've heard this story before, hear it every year around this time. But, but let, let me put it to us this way, that God's word is not boring. I can be boring for sure. I am boring for sure. You can ask probably any of my children. My little two-year-old Levi probably gets uh, over it sometimes. So, so I, I get that a preacher or someone who's communicating God's word can be boring, my, myself included. But God's word is never boring. God's word is, is never stale. It, 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 it's never lacking something that we truly need. It is always fresh. It is always new. It is always good. Therefore, the question when we come to scripture, especially when there's a repeated theme like we will and, and have already seen throughout Romans, is not, have you heard this before? But do you believe it? Is Christ really your life? Are you really living this way? See, if the Lord has ordained not just Romans to be written, but even our church to be going through this, we should be so careful and trust that when he brings up a theme again to us, that we don't go, I've already walked through that, but Lord, is there something else in that for me? God, are you saying something else that I, that I need to hear that, that I missed last time? Or is there something of the depth and wealth of your gospel that I need to uh, understand more richly in this? Or is there more sin that's being exposed? Because even if a theme is familiar to us, we're different people often when we come to the text and it reveals new ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, now this can be painful at first because that's not entertaining, is it? It's not entertaining to have those questions like, do I really believe this? What's God saying to me? But, but it, even though it is painful at first, it is always good. It is always good because the layers of sin, of foolishness, of immaturity are being stripped away so that we would hear his voice. So we may believe this, this sort of sounds like old news, but nevertheless, it is and always will be really good news. And Romans 3 verse 21 explains this goodness again in an unmistakable kind of way. See, for the entire chapter... Paul has been pouring on the implications of our sinful conditions. In, in fact, he's done this by giving us a real clear view of his first century readers, the, the Jews in particular. In Romans 3, verse 2, he, he sort of unpacks that uh, this idea of uh, being a Jew is actually to great advantage to the Jews. Why? Verse 2 says that it's much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of law, and of, of oracles of God. In other words, they, they had the law. They had the word of God. So the advantage of being a Jew was that they knew God. However, knowing God meant that they had a better understanding of their sin, of the ways in which they were not God. 
So knowing who God is through his word reveals sin in us. And so Paul is saying this is what the Jews were experiencing, that though they knew God, that was to their advantage, they, they were also in the same boat, if you will, under sin and, un, and unrighteous, just like their Gentile neighbors. So the Jewish people weren't any better off because the law did not make them righteous. So they had the law, they knew God, but they were not righteous as a result. The law actually revealed sin. It only revealed their unrighteousness. Now, church, if this is true for the Jews that Paul is writing to in first century Rome, who are part of God's chosen people, how much more is it true of us today? How much more is this true of us today? Do we need to hear that even though we have the Bible, we have the scriptures, we have gathered as the church, you've been faithful even in COVID during a global pandemic of continuing to gather with the church, we still need to be sure that our righteousness is coming from the Lord and not from our own merit and from our own effort. See, because the Jews knew about righteousness, but they themselves were not righteous. That's the, the point that Paul is making throughout Romans, is that to be saved, you need to be righteous. And then he says, no one's righteous. To be saved, you need to be righteous, and no one's righteous. Now, we explored uh, a little bit ago, a couple of weeks ago, from the Sermon on the Mount, as we looked at it, that, that Jesus spoke about salvation in a particular way. He talked about entering the kingdom uh, of God. And he spoke about that also in juxtaposition, or along with, speaking about the righteousness of God. So he too was saying that to be saved, you need to be righteous, that to enter the kingdom, to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you needed to be righteous. Now in the minds of Jesus' listeners in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, no one was more righteous than the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and these particular religious elites of the day followed the 600, the over 600 rules and regulations found in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Three, about 300 of them were prohibitions and 300 of them were positive uh, commands. In other words, here's what you don't do and here's what you do. But they, they so wanted to follow these laws of God that they came up with a thousand edicts, over a thousand edicts to sort of be a fence around these 600 laws. And they followed those too. So they followed these 600 that God prescribed and, and they gave a thousand. They were like, we're even gonna be more righteous than you, God, want us to be. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings them up. He brings up these particular religious leaders. And here's what he says, all the while knowing that his listeners, who weren't just these religious leaders, but were a bunch of different kinds of people, who would have looked at the religious leaders as the picture of righteousness on earth. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus could have only meant one of two things when he says that, that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He is either saying that there is a kind of uh, religious fidelity that even the teachers of the law did not know, maybe more regulations that they didn't follow, or that there was a way to follow these rules even more closely or more ardently, more passionately that even they weren't. So he's either saying that or what Jesus is saying. And I think this is what he's saying. There is a kind of righteousness, a different kind of righteousness that they're missing. That righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees is not righteousness. That there's a completely different kind of righteousness. In other words, following rules doesn't make you righteous. Following rules doesn't make you righteous. 
Now, the effect the Sermon on the Mount has on us, even today, is the same effect that Romans chapter 1 through 3 verse 20 has on us as well. Essentially, when you, when you read this, there is a kind of bad news. There is a kind of ruin that you sort of feel, that I can't live up to the righteousness of the Pharisees, or, or that in, in Romans, like, under the wrath of God, that's kind of a big deal of this unrighteousness that we all have. We need to be saved, and we need to be righteous, and no one is righteous. What is the hope? So, so we sort of begin to feel this utter ruin that we're in, and this is necessary my sister, my brother, this is necessary to feel this in your spiritual journey. At some point, you must feel this hopelessness. As the 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, who's so helpful, has been so helpful for me in this Roman series, he says that no one can be a Christian without realizing their utter hopelessness. No one can be a Christian without realizing their utter, utter hopelessness. This is what the Sermon on the Mount reveals. This is what Romans reveals. This is what the law of God reveals. Each reveals how hopeless it is to pursue righteousness on our own by means of our own effort, our own ability, and our own power. In other words, it reveals that we need saving. It does not save us. Of course, God in his kindness does not leave us in hopelessness. Can I get an amen? This is really good. It's our realization of need that is necessary, not our consignment to brokenness. But I have to ask you, we have to ask ourselves, do you know that you are utterly hopeless? Do you know that left to yourself, you have no hope of, of the fullness that God has to offer in this life and the fullness of life eternal? You are hopeless. You are dead, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in your trespasses and sin. Friend, if you've never come to this confession, this realization, then you are not a Christian. A Christian has to come to the end of themselves. A Christian is one who has come to the end of themselves. A Christian is one who has fully and truly acknowledged their ruin and their utter hopelessness without Christ. It's only when we come to this admission of our unrighteousness and the realization that Jesus alone offers a completely different kind of righteousness that we actually can be saved. See, because we are not righteous, but Jesus is. Remember, salvation is a person. Righteousness is a person. And it's only through this confession that then Romans chapter 3, verse 21, finds audience in our hearts. This is why we've taken so much time, six, seven months, and Paul takes two and a half chapters to make sure that you hear, that I hear, that we hear, you are utterly hopeless to become righteous on your own. And this is what makes this particular verse leap off the page to us. In that ruin, in that shame, in that guilt, here's what Paul says. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, as is often the case, the English translation is a bit unhelpful in this particular verse. In, in, the, in the Greek translation, the original language that this was written in, that, that phrase, apart from the law, actually comes before the righteousness of God. That means a more literal translation of verse 21 is that, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Why does this matter? Well, I think even in that, that restructuring, if you will, we feel a different emphasis 
take place, a different strength and, and, and power to that particular phrase. And it's even more true in the Greek structure and function that apart from the law takes primacy and focus. And in that context, it's necessary, it's what's necessary that that's where the hope is. The hope is that there is this righteousness not bound up in the law. There is a righteousness that, that, is, that is not simply a result of works. There is this righteousness that we don't chase down and discover through the law. It is apart from the law. See, what Paul has said over two chapters is that to be saved, you must be righteous and no one is righteous. And it is the law that exposes all of this to us. It's the law that makes it clear that you need to be saved. It's the law that makes it clear that righteousness is the only way to be saved. And it's the law that also makes clear that we are not righteous, therefore we cannot save ourselves. That's why this focus of Paul is such good news and, sh and strictly connected to his language and theme. But now, apart from the law, righteousness has come. A righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, one they didn't know about because they were going through the law. They even added to the law themselves. A righteousness necessary and sufficient for salvation. A righteousness that is revealed. So what exactly is revealed righteousness? Well, what we learn from Jesus' own teaching in places like the Sermon on the Mount and in Romans 1, 18 through 3, verse 20, is that righteousness is not discovered. It's not something that we figure out. Righteousness is not something that we seek out and put together on our own. We don't do good and then become good because we've done good. We don't become innocent by paying for our guilty actions through moral ones. See, righteousness is not a concept. It is a person. And when we look at God, he's unsearchable. He, when we look at God, when we, when we look at who he is, we can't find him on our own. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. See, God is beyond mystery. God is unsearchable. God, in fact, is unknowable for human beings. I realize that this at first may mess with your concept of God a little bit, or even your own journey about what it's been like for you to, to come to know God or to, to follow him, or even to be in the context of this church gathering. You see, we may not be able to discover God on our own, but, but God is the God who desires to be known. He's the God who actually reveals himself. So what at first blush may seem odd or even cruel is actually incredibly generous, incredibly gracious, that God is a God who cannot be found, but he is the God who makes himself known. This is exactly the opposite of what we think is true about him. See, in our pride, we think we can reach God or, or righteousness on our own. And in our shame, we believe he is someone we could never find, someone that we could never claim to have a relationship with. This is what fuels our foolish pursuits of right, righteousness. See, in the darkness of our pride and shame, we are convinced that God is always hiding from us or playing hard to get. When in reality, what the Bible teaches is that God is always in the light. We are the ones who are in the dark. We are the ones who cannot see. He is not hiding. We are.
what Paul tells us about God's righteousness is that it's consistent then with his whole character. Notice again in verse 21, chapter 3, Romans, verse 21. The righteousness of God is made manifest. It's manifested. That word means caused to be seen or make known. So in, in his kindness, God causes us to see a different kind of righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ, apart from the law. By his grace, he, he makes known a righteousness which is not bound by the law, but actually fulfills the law. God is a God then who makes himself known to us. We see this, that God makes himself known in creation, not, not only by creating all things, but then by speaking and having a relationship with Adam and Eve. They were in the dark and God was and is the light. God didn't speak to sort of bellowing noise from a cloud. He was the God who walked with them in the cool of the day. He drew near. He, he allowed himself. He desired to be known. Jesus does this when he rises from the dead. Multiple New Testament writers tell us that Jesus showed up to his disciples' door, and he, he met with and gathered and showed himself to as many as 500 followers at a single time. See, he didn't just leave breadcrumbs of his life for us to follow and trust that resurrection happened. He demonstrated his power by showing up in real space and real time. We were in the dark, and he is the light. Jesus makes God known also by fulfilling all the promises of God throughout all of history. This is what Paul is going to celebrate at the very end of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. See, God is the one who is in the light. We are the ones who are in the dark, and he graciously brings his light into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, God makes himself known. God is our salvation. God is our righteousness, a gift that is revealed, demonstrated, put on display. He opens eyes. He lifts the veil. He draws near. He is the light that penetrates the darkness. See, the righteousness of God is manifested. It's revealed. It's given. It's made known. It shows up with authority and love and causes those who are unrighteous to see, those who are dead to wake up from their slumber. But we don't trust it. I think even something now in us is probably just, I mean, real toxin is too good to be true. There's no way that that can possibly be the case. See, as modern and religious people, this is a really hard pill for us to swallow, isn't it? See, our whole lives, our whole world is built upon our own righteousness, self-discovery and self-determination. We function within a world and mindset in which I am my actions. My behavior reveals who I am to myself, to others, and even to God. In fact, every worldview and major world religion is based upon the premise of offering our righteousness to the divine in exchange for some type of salvation, whether it's good health or just the good life or perhaps um, access to heaven or to heavenly blessings. However, the gospel is a righteousness not given to God through the law, but a righteousness apart from the law given to us by God. 
Not a righteousness we offer to God through the law, but a righteousness he offers to us by grace. As Dr. Tim Keller put it in one of his books in the really helpful series, Romans for You, which I commend to you. He says, outside of the gospel, we must develop a righteousness and offer it to God and say, accept me. The gospel says that God has developed a perfect righteousness and offers it to us, and by it, we are accepted. See, in truth, though, we don't accept, we don't trust this kind of righteousness. It feels too easy. It feels too good to be true. We don't actually, I know this is kind of odd, but we don't really trust grace. And, and the reason I say that is because if we really trusted grace, we would be more gracious. We would believe that the way that we have been saved is meant to be the way that we live, that we would be more gracious with others, especially in a pandemic situation where everybody is walking through this for the very first time, trying to learn, trying to understand, trying to learn to submit, trying to learn to take care of one another. And we can be low-key really judgmental of one another. So ultimately, I think one of, the re- one of the ways it's revealed that we don't trust a revealed or a grace from God and righteousness is that we don't extend grace to each other. Perhaps the best way to really answer these questions about why we don't trust it, though, where does that come from? Why don't we trust revealed righteousness? Is um, to ask, or rather, to answer these questions is by first thinking about how we live. How we live in pursuit of our own righteousness, our own salvation, and how these become normative to us. These just become the ways that we function in the world. See, I think one of the, the first way, and we'll look at three, the first way is that instead of being known, we hide behind our good deeds. So in other words, instead of living in the light, we, we sort of hide in the darkness and give the world sort of a projection of who we are. We don't naturally live with vulnerability. We just do good. While at first this may seem noble, think about the effect that this has on community. This is why we feel so lonely all the time. Only those who allow their real selves to be seen and and to participate by the community actually enjoy real community. And I get it. We're not in the habit of exposing our hearts. We're in the habit of demonstrating, showing people what we have done. We're we're, We're in the habit, in other words, of doing Christian things. See, when the church builds its morality upon what you do or don't do, then our righteousness is only works deep. We think of our, our, that our actions are enough. And to be sure, our isolation in this is not just our fault. When this mentality takes over a community and a whole culture, it inflicts loneliness on all of us. We all function out of a loneliness and a fear of truly being, being known. And I think regretfully, we've seen this in stark display in a number of prominent Christian leaders, sin being publicly known and being demonstrated, or or rather people being surprised by because they had so many good deeds, so many good deeds that people knew about, and they're shocked that, that this man or this woman could have possibly done something like that. Well, all the while, when you look and peel the layers back of a community, there was not vulnerability. There were, they were not being known. They were not fully transparent. They didn't have accountability. Certainly things that 
have caused me to ask for, for our elder team, for the leaders of our church, what does it mean for us to live in an authentic, humble, vulnerable community? Not just where we put our good deeds out, but where our hearts are truly known in our group, with our elder team, with our deacons, with our group leaders, that we would be a people who actually walk in the light as he is in the light. So we'd have a real fellowship with one another and real fellowship with God. See, this ultimately, in each of these cases, this celebrity was based upon good deeds to the detriment of actually being known by their community and safeguarded by Christ through vulnerability. So this is one way that we've learned to function in rejecting true righteousness and the revealed righteousness in, in not being known, but instead allowing our good deeds to be known. Another way is instead of confessing sin regularly, we wait to get caught. We wait for somebody to call us out on or somebody to or something bad to happen so that ultimately we have to deal with it. And I think this is why we feel so much shame. Instead of admitting who we are and what we've done, we protect ourselves, don't we? We run and hide when the light gets too hot, when, when the accountability gets too close. This happens in our groups all the time. It's not just your group. All of our groups experience this, that when things get a little bit too close, we want to run. We want to hide. But it's only those who confess sin regularly who actually embrace the cleansing work of Christ. See, when he is our peace, we don't just look for it, or rather we don't look for it in other things or in other people. We find it in him. We can actually then, when we know the peace of Jesus, we can share our deepest wounds without shame. We can share our deepest wounds, not, not immediately, doesn't mean it's like completely just a done deal as soon as you come to Christ. But when he is our peace, we, we find more and more that our shame has less and less power because Jesus has more and more power. It's like the last rap battle in 8 Mile. B-Rabbit, the Eminem character, which I'm sure you all knew about and know about, he incorporates every aspect of his woundedness and his shame in his own rap in this last scene. What, what happens then is that all the dissing ammunition, I think that's the right language for a rap battle, all the dissing ammunition that his opponent could have possibly put together to try to shame B-Rabbit was taken away. And he's silent at the microphone. There was nothing hidden. There was no shame. Therefore, his enemy, hear this, had no power. This is also expressed in our church family, in our community. See, when a group of people are all waiting to confess sin until they get caught or they have to bring it to the light. The evil one convinces us that we are the only ones who have done that, that we are the only ones who carry that shame, and therefore we move into greater isolation. We continue to persist in anonymity and not walk in the light. See, Satan has power in our community when we don't confess sin regularly one to another. This is another way that we reject or don't trust revealed righteousness and try to work for it ourselves. Thirdly, lastly, instead of resting in a received identity then, we have learned to hustle to prove our holiness. This is why you're so tired. Because you don't just spend your life working and taking care of your family and having friendships. We spend most of our lives trying to figure out who we are. See, every day it's exhausting to get up and try to put yourself together, to try to capture your identity. The Christian is one, though, who rests in a received identity and who has ceased from hustling for their holiness. We'll consider this more when we look at verse 22 next week. But suffice to say that we have a hard time trusting something given to us freely or done on our behalf. 
because we trust what we control and create ourselves. When, when a uh, thing is, when it happens this way, there's happens within the church, then we're in this constant competition with one another. None of us can rest because we're always worried that someone else in our group or in our friend circle will outpace us. And so we continue to try to build our identity and build our lives with our own righteousness. But a gift is actually more powerful than a wage. Think about this. I think we often believe that we would celebrate something more when we know that we have earned it. But, but think about this. What we are given freely out of love changes us in more fundamental and lasting ways than something that we have earned. Why? Why, why is this true? Because ultimately something done out of love and not out of compensation is more elemental and fundamental to who we are as those created in the image of God. See, we see ourselves and pursue images of others which are all about action and behavior or are discovered and earned righteousness. We don't trust a revealed righteousness because we work too hard to create our own goodness. And actually that binds us up and it puts us as the centerpiece of all of our achievements, of all that we have garnered and all that we have earned. It really is unto our own glory, not to the glory of God. And that doesn't free us to joy. It binds us up in bitterness. Church, what this means is that many of you who call yourselves Christians are not. To be saved, you need to be righteous, and none of us are, and therefore many of us spend most of our days trusting in a false security, in a false righteousness. And I don't say this to frighten you. I say this because by God's Spirit, I desperately want your eyes and my eyes to be open. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The test is not about your works. The test is about where your hope, your trust, and your righteousness come from. In other words, if Jesus is really in you, you need not worry about self-examination and of, and of asking the question, am I really in the faith? You only have to fear if Jesus isn't your life. You only have to fear if Jesus isn't your hope. So my, my brothers, examine yourself. Are you trusting in a revealed righteousness or in one that you're trying to discover for yourself? My sisters, examine yourself. Are you trusting in a revealed righteousness or in something that you are trying to achieve for yourself. And, and the way I think that we sort of excavate our own hearts in this is, do you feel alone? Do you feel shame? Are you constantly weary from labor that is futile? Then you likely are not resting in Christ. You, you likely are not finding your confidence in him. You likely aren't trusting that he has your identity, that he holds your future, that he ultimately is your righteousness. How is trust rebuilt? So we've looked at what revealed righteousness is. We looked at why we don't trust it. Now, how is it rebuilt? See, he who is revealed, who was anticipated, it, Jesus Christ himself, then Paul's main point is that righteousness isn't just apart from the law, but, but notice what he says in the latter portion of verse 21, that the law and the prophets actually bore witness to it. So Jesus is not apart from the law in that he dismisses it or doesn't care for it. That, that, that's actually what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, that he has come to fulfill it, not to abolish it. See, paradoxically, then, the law has a dual function. 
As we've established, it serves to reveal sin and it exposes us all as unrighteous. Yet the law also serves as a signpost to Christ. It points to true righteousness. It reveals unrighteousness and then it points to true righteousness. So the law exposes sin, but it also reveals Christ. See, this is why Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. But the language in verse 21 is, is also, it's important that it's, in the, it's a present participle, meaning that the law and the prophets continue to testify and bear witness to Jesus. So at one and the same time, the word of God tells us the bad news, all the while preparing us for the good. Do you see the very thing we think will be to our demise that is boring to us and broken to us? the very thing that we think will break us, that, that if, if it exposes us, that we, if we're truly known, if we really have to confess all of this sin, if we have to stop hustling for our holiness, if we don't no longer trust ourselves to make our identity, acknowledge all of these things, we fear that we will be lost in it. But that is the fertile soil where real righteousness is actually revealed. How does Jesus free us from this? I think it's with that those two words, that beautiful phrase. Because no matter what your accusation or guilt, your sin or your shame, no matter what comes your way, Jesus gives us this wonderful phrase, but now. Ah, oh, you think you've slept around too much to be loved by God. Jesus says, but now. You think that the pain of your childhood trauma owns your story and it will forever be your shame. Jesus says, but now. You think that you will never be without a drink, that you will never know yourself without being hopped up on some substance. Jesus says what? But now. You think you'll never be the father, the mother, the employee, the friend that you're supposed to be. And so you keep hustling. What's Jesus say? But now. You think that you'll have to every day wake up and put your life together and hold things together. And I know that feeling, especially in COVID, that if you stop, if you quit, if you rest, then everything will fall apart. What's Jesus say? But now. The world has told you that because you're single and haven't found anyone to marry yet, that your life is meaningless and there's no hope for that kind of relationship. What's Jesus say? But now. If you desire children, and there's something in you that you just feel like is totally empty. What's Jesus say? But now. See, in Christ, we are not waiting for our righteousness to be achieved. He has already achieved it. You are not waiting for your life to be put together. You are not waiting for who you are to be discovered. You are not waiting for a righteousness that you can attain and give it to God and say, look how great I am. But now a righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. But now, this is good news that you can find rest for your weary soul. This is good news that righteousness, which is required for salvation, is not a concept. It is a person, Jesus Christ, who says, but now, here I am, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. He is the light. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. See, the reason that a revealed righteousness is so precious is that something you've earned, you can lose in a moment. 
If you earn your righteousness through works, you lose it by your works. But in Christ, we have a righteousness that can't be lost because it wasn't earned and discovered in the first place. It was given to you by grace. And what was given by grace is sustained by grace, is sealed by grace, is yours by grace. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been manifested. Jesus Christ. So, Heavenly Father, we just say you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.